Welcome back to the Classic Rock Podcast. Now, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks because we've got two shows coming up for you in the next few weeks. The next show, we're going to be looking at the life and times of Cheap Trick. And we've got Luke Morley of Thunder coming in. He joins me to talk about the excellent new album. It's called All the Right Noises. And we'll look back over a 40-year career that he and Danny Bose have had together. Uh, now, what's in this show? Well, Danny Zalisco is a promoter of Legendary Standing, who over the last five decades has been involved with pretty much everybody from the Almonds to Zappa. And when we mean he's been involved with everybody, he has promoted over 10,000 shows all across the USA. Now, he has a book out. It is called all excess, and it is 350-odd pages of anecdotes of life dealing with uh, pretty much every rock star and comedian, because there's a bit in there about Rodney Dangerfield, which is very funny. Um, and if you think you've heard it all, well, I can tell you, you haven't. I mean, did you ever hear the story, for example, about the law being called because Slash had been found curled up in a fetal position in the middle of a golf course? No, I thought not. Anyway, Danny joined me to chat about that and life as a promoter and this and that. And we ended up chucking in a bit of music as well. So in between the anecdotes, you'll hear Frank Zappa, Guns N' Roses, Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin, John Cougar, The Beatles and Pink Floyd, which is where we begin. So are you sitting comfortably? So we just set the controls here because we are off to the heart of the sun Thank you. 
Your love of music began like it did for so many Americans of the time. Growing up as a kid in the 50s and 60s, sat in front of the TV every Sunday evening watching the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, the art of promotion begins to emerge when you're all of nine years of age, when you start sending letters with stamped addressed envelopes as well, in some cases, to some of your favourite baseball stars. And to your surprise... Most of them responded. Yeah, um, we realized that we could we could write letters, and, and any kids listening out there, you can do the same thing with your favorite sports uh, people. You can write to them care of the uh, arena or stadium where they perform, and they'll get it. <clears throat> so we figured this out when we were little kids, and we started writing to various baseball players, football players, hockey players, and. Lo and behold, we were getting answers from these guys, and they're sending us back autographed pictures. Some of them gave us tickets to uh, to games. Um, you know, it, it was it was remarkable. So it, it opened up a whole new world to my brother and myself um, when we were, you know, he was maybe eleven and twelve, and I was seven or eight, and um, we really, you know, it, it taught us a lot. Um, about celebrity and, 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 and our entertainment heroes, these were sports heroes at the time, that, you know, they were up on a pedestal for, for us kids who admired them, and, and then they turned into regular good people by responding to kids who were reaching out to tell them how much they liked them. And, you know, it, it's somebody outside of your house when you're a little kid uh, recognizing you and, and acknowledging you by answering you and treating you like a human being instead of a dumb little kid. Not that my parents treated us like dumb little kids, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> you, you are a dumb little kid, come on. So, <laughs> but then now you've got some validation where you got somebody 
possibly even famous or at least well known in your community um, that's acknowledging you and, and I'll tell you what for your for your esteem uh, as a kid it goes a long way you gain confidence from that and you learn how to deal with you know situations that um, it, it, you know with a head on your shoulders instead of really being a dumb little kid you seem to have this knack I picked up through reading the book of being in the right place <laughs> at the right time. Firstly, the Allman Brothers gig, where yeah, you sat one. behind the rather legendary road manager, uh, Twigs Leiden, who gave you the advice on how to get involved, you know, turn up when the trucks get there. And so you followed his uh, advice. Yeah, you know, the best part uh, of meeting Twigs, and it was, it was so, I mean, it was the opportunity was incredible, but it just kind of presented itself. He was there, and I was there. Um, I had only gone to the show because my uh, my new neighbor, who was in, a, in the downstairs part of the apartment building I moved into, <clears throat> um, was a usher at the show, and he says, "Hey, I got the Allman Brothers tonight. You want to come in? I'll let you, I'll let you in through the front door." And uh, I'm sure Bill Graham didn't appreciate that, but I got in for free to that show and. I told Bill about it years later, and he laughed because we ended up working together. Um, but at that show, I met Twigs at the sound desk in the middle of the auditorium, and I told him how badly I wanted to be in the business. I, I had no skills. I didn't know what I was going to be able to do, except I, I could hang, and I, I knew I could do something. And uh, that's when he told me to go, just go climb onto an equipment truck and start pulling gear off, and you'll catch on with somebody. Well, the funniest part of that story is it, it well not only did I follow his advice and do that the next day when uh, the yes band came to town and um, I was I was talking in an English accent to the Bill Graham roadies and I was talking like I was with Bill Graham to to yes's roadies and and I got away with this all day until dinner time rolled around and Bill Graham shows up and he goes who the hell is this kid and uh I was busted, and he thought it was funnier in hell, and, and he let me hang around with him. And he, he said, you didn't get in anybody's way. You didn't screw up. You sound okay to me. Good good one on you. So the, the, the great thing that happened five years later, so that was 1972. In May of 77, I had secured a job booking a nightclub um, that I didn't know I was going to get when I met Twigs. Five years later, he was road managing the Dixie Dregs, which is a phenomenal band from the South. Yeah, and Steve, uh, Morse. Steve Morse came from them, was in Deep Purple now, and uh, Rod Morgenstern. Uh, fantastic band, and Twigs was the road manager. So this is five years later, and this is 77, so I'm 22 years old now. I was 17 when I met him. Um, and now I'm the promoter, and, and I come walking in, and, and this guy just about fell off his chair because he recognized me immediately. Uh, he says, I didn't know if I was ever going to see you again. He goes, this is your gig. Unbelievable. You know, he just, he was beside himself. That He goes, you really put this together in a very short period of time? He goes, people say nice things about you. It's what, that was the whole point, right? And he goes, yeah, good for you. So I, that was one of the greatest, you know, those, those moments happen with me a lot. I mean, it's very bizarre. Yes, meeting him was a good fortune. You moved to Phoenix and you picked... I mean, this is, this is just beyond uh, parody, really. You pick up a hitchhiker who happens to be Alice Cooper's tour production manager. Consider that thing with Twigs. That happened in San Francisco, in Berkeley. And five years later, he's meeting me in Tempe, Arizona. I mean, it's, you can't write this.
first real gig you you were at doing a, a, a job led zeppelin june june 73 uh-huh. pretty memorable day wasn't it arriving at 5 a.m emptying bins and then <laughs> filling in for jimmy page when they all thought he got AWOL. well you know it, it, that sounds a lot more glamorous than it was i was on the sound desk <laughs> <laughs> i like the way you say it better i was on the sound desk and um it turned out that jimmy was going to be late because he decided to take a normal plane from L.A. up to um, San Francisco instead of going on the band's charter. And he got there a couple of hours late as a result of it, and we had to entertain the audience. So they said, here's 12 A-tracks, play music for the audience. So I'm in the middle of that vast sea of people, and I don't remember any of the, uh, I was going to say CDs, it was an A-track. Uh, I remember I had, and I had, uh, I think I had Days of Future Past. That was one of the albums, and, and, and there was some other good music. And I managed to, you know, just do it in different order for a couple of hours. But it was a fun gig to have, you know. And, and then uh, later on, Jimmy showed up, and what a show! It was amazing, though, when you consider in 1973 the tickets were six dollars, and they were writing in the newspaper that the band made. $190,000, which came out to about $1,000 a minute. And, and, and it's so humorous to look at that now when you think, what would Led Zeppelin make for a show today? One, see, instead of, instead of that $190,000, be more like $19 million.
Sundown Productions uh, kicks off. Um, and you started by trying to get Lindsay Buckingham, you, and Stevie Nicks, uh, who right. was, as you said in the in the book, she was waiting tables still right. in restaurants in, in L.A. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I called her record company. I think it was Polydor. And I, I ended up get, being led to her father, whose name was Jess Nix, who proved to be uh, a very important figure in my concert-promoting life and my personal life, too. We, became, we all became family. Um, <clears throat> but I had to call Jess up to find Stevie, and he told me she's waiting. He's very frank with me. She's waiting tables over in L.A. You got a gig for her? Let's do it. So I was going to do Buckingham Nicks is what it was called, um, Dan Fogelberg, and another guy named Jerry Riopelle. And Jerry Riopelle was going to be the headliner. They're all going to make $1,500 a piece, $4,500 for the show, and I didn't pull the trigger. And had I pulled the trigger, I could have probably sold two shows out with that because at the time, both uh, all three of those, those artists were huge here in Phoenix. We had a radio station here that played everybody that was making good music, and there's so much of it coming out in the 70s that got passed over in so many other cities because they didn't have a radio station with the people we had here. And it was, it was integral to, to my growth as a promoter here in that you, know, you had a station that actually broke bands and their great music over the radio instead of like today. The only way you can find music anywhere is if a friend of yours turns you on to it or you happen to turn on Spotify or something. Yeah. But it's all by chance anymore. It's not by design where you have a, a brilliant music director and program director uh, laying out the day musically for what an audience is going to hear on the radio anymore. It, it's really a shame when you think about it because there's so much great music being made today that nobody's really getting a chance to hear properly. You were finding out as well how tough it was in this, in this business. You, you got what you thought was your first proper show, Herbie Hancock and the Weather Report. And it got right. pulled because of Deep Purple. And by the way, <laughs> it's Richie Blackmore's birthday today. <laughs> Happy birthday, Rich. Uh, yes, th that's, that's exactly what happened. The same booking agency booked both Deep Purple and Herbie Hancock, um, which, which isn't unique or, or weird or anything. They, you know, people book different kinds of groups. The thing was, is back in 1974, there was only one radio station playing both of those bands, and it was the same station. And that was what the agent used as his point when he said, we're going to have to postpone Herbie Hancock because we don't want to have that show in the same town on the same night because if one of those shows gets hurt by the other, the other one is going to be mad at us as their booking agent saying, what are you doing booking you know, shows from your, our own roster up against each other? And, you know, my thought on that was, you know, that's crazy because it's literally jazz versus rock. But, you know, back in 1974, you know, the guy, he came right out and asked me, he goes, do you like both bands? I go, as a matter of fact, I do. He goes, who would you go see? I said, well, I've seen Deep Purple more recently, so I'd probably go see Herbie Hancock. And he said, well, see, one of the bands is going to lose you. Brilliant. And he goes, and that's, going to ha and that's going to happen thousands of times, you know, uh, possibly, potentially. So I had to agree with him. And the bad part of this was this is at the very beginning of my career of promoting. It didn't cost me any money per se right then. But we had to move the show from April to June. 
And what happens between April and June is about an additional 20 degrees in temperature. So in April, we're to be 85 or 90 degrees. In June, it's 105 or 110. So what happens is school gets out in May and people go on vacation, people with money anyway, go on vacation. Uh, you still got plenty of people here in town, but at the time that this was going on, there was less than a million people living here. Now there's 5 million people living here. So it's a completely different city back in 1974. So... The reason I moved here was because I didn't feel like I would have a lot of competition from other promoters because nobody's really paying attention to Phoenix yet. Nobody's paying attention to Arizona yet, except some baseball teams that come out for a month every year for spring training before they start their baseball season. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm very happy with my decision to move here, um, and, and it, worked out, it worked out really, really well. First band you got on, the, the Mahavishu Orchestra, it was in June of uh, of 74. But again, the, the story here is about you booking uh, an additional band, the opening act, which was a new band at the time, uh, and it didn't quite happen for Journey. You know, uh, it, it was an amazing thing. Um, the Mahavishnu Orchestra was John McLaughlin, another jazz guy, who I was, I was able to book. I mean, I was having a hard time getting anybody to sell me an act because I'd never booked a show before. Nobody wanted to be the guinea pig. Nobody, nobody wanted to be my first. You know, I was, I was destined to be a virgin for a while. Uh, anyway, um, uh, yes, Ma Vishnu was the first one, and I thought I would be Joe Concert Promoter, and, and I'd just been waiting to do this, was to book some kind of a band that didn't really seem like they should be on the same bill with somebody, which is how Bill Graham would promote shows and how other legendary promoters before me would book shows. And um, the, the manager of Mahavishnu found out, who also happened to manage Bob Dylan and, and a lot of other really big bands, and he called up and said, um, swear to God, right out of the box, he goes, is this your first show? And I said, yeah, why? Does it show? He goes, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, you, you booked an opening act without talking to us. Well, why do I got to talk to you? It's my show. It's our show, too. And we've got 23 people on stage. You didn't realize that, did you? I go, nope. He goes, well, we have 23 people on stage, and once we set everything up in the afternoon and we do our sound check, we're not moving anything. So we can't possibly put another band with gear up in front of them. You know, you could have a comedian if you wanted. Or, or, or solo acoustic act, but you can't have a band with drums. And, you know, it was Ainsley Dunbar, uh, who was in Journey at the time. And so I had Journey. It was their first show outside of California. They'd never played outside of California as a band before. And I was paying them 500 bucks. And I had to call, I had to call them up and cancel them. Um, oh... God, you know they do. Uh, I, but, but we ended up becoming great friends, and then Jonathan Kane, who's the band's keyboard player and chief writer, um, he, later on, he ended up asking for some help with getting his dad a job because his parents needed to move from Chicago to Phoenix for health reasons, and I helped get him a job here, and um, John's mother ended up being my daughter's godmother. So I, it, it's really funny how this stuff... <laughs> It just turns around. Your relationship, uh, your relationship with Dooley's begins and you're fully immersed then 
into the life and all of the, the stresses uh, that go with it. Chuck Berry, one of your first bookings. And it, it's like the, the lists of requirements, the fact that fees are agreed and then they turn up and they won't play unless you give them more money paid in advance. It, it was a real baptism of fire. You know, uh, especially at the beginning, it, it always was. As much as we tried to stay out in front of things, you, it, it takes a village, really. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's really true. You know, I mean, in the 70s, doing shows was much different than now because now I have a, a production manager. Back then, I couldn't afford a production manager. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what a production manager was. I didn't know what production was, which is the art of talking to the band's representative, who's the technical guy, and, and you've got to coordinate all the day's activities for the day of the show. Um, you know, what time they're going to get there, how many helpers you want to unload and stagehands to help you set up and, and everything from there on. And um, back in the day, I had to do everything. And, and we really didn't have formal job descriptions like we do today. A promoter did everything. I mean, there's something, get this one, you'll laugh at this. A, a good production manager for a show depending on the size of the show, will make anywhere from $1,000 to $2,500 per show. And, and when you consider this would involve hundreds, possibly thousands of emails of all of the details to work out the show, with it, down to the last brown M&M in the catering room <laughs> and, and the, the last stagehand and assistant and runner and wardrobe person, makeup person, whatever you got to get. These people work on these things you know, forever, uh, it seems. And, and when I make up a budget for a concert, and I, if I try to put in production manager, they always say, and this goes back to back then, they said, you're the promoter, either you do the production or you pay for it out of your own pocket. We're not going to pay for it. It's not a show expense. I said, you really want me getting in the middle of technical things? Are you crazy? You don't want me talking about electricity. <laughs> you know, my dad was an electrician, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, it, it, it's it's a, it's a funny business, but you know, over the years, uh, I, I had some of the wildest stuff happen where where bands just didn't show up. I remember I had Dobie Gray. Remember that guy, Dobie Gray? Uh, yeah, I do. He yeah. had that rock and roll song. Uh, he just didn't show up. Just didn't show up and the good news five people had bought tickets so it was so great that nobody showed up i didn't have to give him his money um you know and 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 i didn't lose as much well i was gonna say what about johnny cougar he was a bit of a i remember talking to to john scott who was behind getting tom petty discovered and the record deals uh, that he had. Now, he tried the same with, with Cougar. He used to turn up at radio stations with a live Cougar on a leash. <laughs> uh, but he, he was known as something else in the trade, wasn't he? The little bastard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like saying that with an English accent. Um, I was very good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was known as that because that's what everybody called him and that's what he put on the back of his records, produced by the little bastard. Very, very funny. And, and, and at the time, you know, I guess very fitting. I guess we could all say that about ourselves. John was a handful back then. Um, he, uh, he got mad at me for, for the show, the, the place I booked him at in Tucson. 
And I'd heard rumors about him. I'd, I'd been warned that the, he could be a handful, and he was. I mean, the first night, nothing, nothing bad. He was fantastic. What a performer. Second night, I thought I was going to have another great show. And after the first song, he, he tells the audience, he goes, see that guy there? That's the promoter. He ought to be arrested for calling this a concert hall. This is the worst. This is, I, he goes, I have card, table, card tables at home bigger than this stage. And my, my sound system in my car is better than the PA in this place. So and he goes, go get your money back from him. The thing that John didn't realize was that we were a little more than half sold out of a 400-seater that I charged $1.92 for the tickets to get in to go along with the radio station's number, which was 92 So it was $1.92 to get in. I hadn't even grossed $800, and he's barking about how crummy the stage is. I was not amused. And, and I, I decided to do the only thing a, a, a guy could do in a position like that. I started running at the stage, and I was going to tackle him. And uh, the, my, fortunately, my two security guys, who are much, much larger than me, um, they stopped me and grabbed me with my legs still running in place. It was like a cartoon, and everybody had fun telling me about that later. But they said, no, boss, you don't want to do that.
Jamaican kids doing best they can. Your powers, your powers of organisation and crisis management <laughs> needed in abundance for what was the, the the arena gig, wasn't it, at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Arizona uh, with uh, with Bob yeah. Seger. People forget about the fact that booking these huge places, no online booking, selling hard copy tickets, you know, you delivering tickets to venues right. around town. And then you're wandering around, chest puffed out, thinking it's going to be a great show. And he pulls you over and says, uh, have a word with the yeah. manager, will you? It, it was one of the, I mean, it's one of those moments you can never prepare yourself for because if you, if you did, you would say later, oh, I jinxed it, I talked about it. The fact that, hap you know, what happened was is, is it, he was in Arizona, it was in April, like right now, like this time of the year in 1980, so that's 41 years ago. And, and uh, Bob had been in town for a day or two prior to the show. And, uh, you know, it's very, very dry in Arizona. And, um, you know, in most other places, you got 20, 30, 40, 50% humidity or higher. Whereas in Arizona, at, that, at this time of the year, maybe it's 5%, 8%, 10%. So it's very dry. And um, the, the dryness just took his voice away and caused him to him to completely get laryngitis and he said i can't sing the song main street and it was number one in the country right then he goes i can't go on tonight and i said i got an idea bob drop that damn song i always hated that song anyway and he goes no 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 it's number one can't i guess I, I there's no way i can do a show without playing that song and he goes you know what are you so disappointed about he goes i'll come back i promise i said bob it's six it's five o'clock at night the lot, we had a lobster dinner for everybody. Lobsters cooked. Everybody's eating dinner, getting ready for the show. People are getting ready at home. They're getting dressed. They're going to dinner. They're on their way to the place. And we had to get on the radio and, and close up the, the fences to the building so nobody could get on the premises and announce that the show was canceled. Um, and the following day, or no, it was the next week, we announced not only one makeup date, but two makeup dates because he said, since we sold out so fast, well, let's add another show and I can make some money for coming all the way back out here from Detroit. And he also had Tucson that he had to cancel, which wasn't my show. So he came out for the three dates and, um, and did them and sold them all out again and everybody was happy. But the thing that, that was crushing me at the time back in April when, when he was canceling the show was, I had to pay for all of those expenses, which came out just just for the day of the show expenses that I was out of pocket, that they were gonna take out of the ticket sales was over $30,000. And and this is 1980, so just figure out what $30,000 is now. It's well into the hundreds, I would think. And um, Bob wrote the check to me for those expenses so that I could cover them in the meantime Nobody's ever done that before or since, by the way. 
and and he covered the costs until we played the date again in June. It was another one of these April to June things. It happened again, deja vu, and uh, <laughs> uh, except that everybody came this time, and um, and then he got his money back. You know when we played the dates, but I couldn't take the money out of the ticket sales because that wasn't my money to spend. The show didn't happen in April; it was getting postponed. So uh, it, it was definitely the getting getting a a real experience, a real lesson or an education at the hands of of this tragic you know accident that happened where he lost his voice.
that there are a few that uh, did seek to take advantage of your hospitality. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking uh, in particular here of uh, James <laughs> Brown, who uh, decided he liked it in town so much he wanted to extend the hotel stay by a week and not pay. You, you make it sounds you make it sound so pleasant. Um, <laughs> um, well, part of James's deal, and I don't like for this reason partly, uh, but I never liked getting involved in the band's accommodations. Um, when I pay somebody a guarantee to come and perform a show, you know where how they get to town, where they stay, how they get to the show how they get back to the hotel or the airport, I like to leave that up to them. That's all very personal stuff. I don't want to get involved with moving people around. I really don't. Now, if somebody calls me up and says, hey, give me the name of a limousine company, no problem. Or give me the name of a driver, no problem. You know, um, But I don't want to be involved in selecting hotels because if they don't like the hotel, you're an idiot. If you, if you personally supply the cars for him and he's a, the guy's late or he doesn't show up, you're an idiot. <laughs> so stay out of that stuff. You know, that's, that's one of my rules. It's like, you know, it's one thing for me to go catering the show, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the crew and the band. That's one thing. You know, they give us a list of things that they want us to get. We're happy to do it. We're their host for the night. Backstage is, a dress, is, is not only a dressing room, but it's their home for the day and for that night. So you, you want to look after them the best you can. Uh, but, you know, every now and again, they get carried away with what they want to get from you. And, and, and in my book, pardon the pun, if, uh, if, if, I, uh, if I'm not aware of certain special needs going in and they want those things later on, I'm happy to help them arrange it and get it for them. But at that stage, usually I'm a little past paying for it myself. But you'd be surprised how many business people on the road try to get the snooker, the promoter, into paying for things that they never agreed to just because he's the promoter and that, that unveiled threat of, you know, you want to see these guys again, don't you? So, you know, it's like sometimes with some people doing your job just isn't enough. they yeah, got to get more out of you. That used to happen more in the past than it does now. That, that kind of stuff generally doesn't happen anymore. We all know each other. Everybody's on to everybody. It's like, don't, don't pull any of that <laughs> the stuff. The tour rider became legendary yeah. in the 1980s. It seemed to be a race to find out who could provide the most outrageous request. All started, of course, with uh, Van Hecklen <laughs> inserting, <clears throat> excuse me, the clause for the no brown M&Ms, all done to make sure that people read the, the rider. But you had... Queen with the cheese board, Prince who wanted 10 grand's worth of roses and carnations flown in from Holland, the petting zoo. Which was the most outrageous request that you had? Uh, well, the petting zoo is a joke, um, <laughs> but I, I absolutely loved it. And, and they put it in there for the same reason, was they wanted to see if people were reading what they were getting sent. Um, because, you know, the best thing when you're going to host a party and you're going to have special guests come and play music, you want to make sure they're comfortable and they have what they need, whether it's a, a certain type of beer or, or Cokes or ice or towels or food or whatever you want to do. But when I saw this thing, uh, the petting zoo, I, I laughed so hard for so long. I thought it was just fantastic. And I really, I didn't have the time to... To do it, the, the contract just showed up the day of the show, 
and I had to sign it for technicality purposes just to have it on the records. But when I read that thing, it's like I was wishing I could have done something like equally obnoxious <laughs> along the lines of a petting zoo, but I didn't do it. <clears throat> um, you know, the thing that a lot of people don't understand, they hear about the riders and, and everything. At the end of the day, if a group has one of these these riders, they're, they're like matters of convenience of, of, of making the day go smooth. Um, I, I'm happy when they give me the help of saying, here's what we like. You know, a lot of times you, you are ready to provide more things for them than they're actually asking for. So you're better off just to give them what they want. Um, there's very few like ridiculous things like that anymore. And when they do come up, the agent will say to you, by the way, you have to budget blank X amount of dollars for this. Uh, like in Prince's case, I talked to the road man, uh, the, the production manager of Prince, Tommy Marzullo. I go, Tommy, what's with these flowers for Prince? You know, white carnations from Holland. I mean, what? He goes, look, the kid feels comfortable. He gets stage fright and it makes him feel good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. he's paying for him. I don't care. Well, we'll whatever you want, bro. <laughs> you know, so... So we, we did it, and uh, it was all ordered, it was all arranged, and for whatever reason, this was right after Purple Rain, the show ended up getting canceled. And he came back again later without the, without the flowers. There are the requests, though, that have a hint of the Twilight Zone about them when you look oh. back now. I'm thinking of uh, Marvin Gaye, who wanted an armed uniform guard on the tarmac when his plane arrived. Because he was convinced, wouldn't he, that he'd had this premonition that he yeah. would die of a gunshot, which he did months later. Um, yeah, uh, he was so convinced that that was going to happen with this premonition he had. Uh, he didn't know who it was or where it was going to happen, but he talked about it. Um, and that, you know, he, he apologized for making me jump, go out of my way to do that. I was happy to do it, though. I mean, imagine, imagine being Marvin Gaye and thinking something bad was going to happen like that. But... He, um, there were a lot of reasons behind all that that was fueling his paranoia. None of them were good. And it was very sad, you know, to see him in the grips of uh, the demons, you know. Uh, but man, he got on stage and he delivered. Woo! God, he was great. Pivotal moments in your, uh, your, your career. Uh, a lot of them surrounded your relationship with Bill Graham, who, uh, and it was enhanced again after you did this amazing job promoting the Grateful Dead, not once, but you then did it again when you, you were the one that opened up Las Vegas into realizing that, hey, listen, there's money to be made here in live gigs. Yep. Yeah, the, um, now what, what happened with, with the Dead was they had played there in Vegas in the 70s. And as far as I know, I'd, I'd have to look it up. I'm not 100% sure. <clears throat> but as far as I know, they didn't play during the 80s because they didn't even sell out the 7,000-seat Aladdin Hotel uh, prior to that. So Bill Graham's guys, the Barsotti brothers, as they're famously known, were working on a gig in Vegas, and the guy from the stadium where they played called me up and said, hey, I wanted to let you know that we're, we're talking about doing these dead shows. Do you know anything about it? And I didn't, so I called Bob up, Barsotti, and he says, yeah, we've been working on it all year. It's going to happen. I said, I want in. You know, I'm the guy that puts on all the shows in Vegas. You know, the promoters at the time, back then, kind of had an unwritten rule, which is you stayed in your own state or you stayed in the places that you 
worked in primarily, and my places were Vegas, Phoenix, and Tucson, and Albuquerque, four of the greatest cities in the southwest part of the country, all beautiful places. And the beautiful thing about all of them was nobody was here promoting shows in any of these places. So I, I was here by myself, and that was why I moved out here. Mama didn't raise no fool. So I came out here and started uh, doing all that, and, and when, the, when the dead shows came around, um, we literally... The dead, and we didn't know we were doing this at the time, um, but it, it literally put Vegas on the rock and roll map, turning it into a rock and roll destination, which it certainly is now. But those, that was the first big ex, exclamation point uh, in rock history with regards to Las Vegas, where we proved that over 80,000 tickets could be sold for a weekend event. Uh, we had the Grateful Dead in Santana the first year, 1991, Bill got killed that year in that fall. Um, yeah, had a couple of I was burying him. I, I was burying him on my 37th birthday. I was throwing dirt on him. Um, it, it was awful. And the next year we resumed it. We, you know, we just kept going. And uh, the next year we had uh, the band for three nights with Steve Miller. The next was with Sting. The next was with Traffic, which was just unbelievably brilliant. And and then we had Dave Matthews. Uh, three nights each. And, and that was like the second or third biggest town in Las Vegas every year when we, you know, when we brought the dead to town. And the whole, the whole climate, the whole attitude that we originally were met with in 1991, which was the, the casino people hated us. They hated all the hippies. And then they realized when they, when they left, they dropped behind millions of dollars. <laughs> And uh, in gambling and food and drinks and hotels and everything else. So by the next year, we were a little bit more welcome. And by the third year, when Sting came, and now we've got the king of AOR, CHR, you know, opening our show. I mean, the, the crossover was incredible. And uh, there were banners in the town over, over the strip going, welcome dead fans to Vegas. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we did an about face with the public there like you wouldn't believe because we literally created a new holiday weekend every time we showed up with our 45,000 people. Brilliant. And uh, for, th for three nights, yeah, it was genius. And, but, the, but the great thing about it was it wasn't done by design. All we were trying to do is book a successful concert, and it ended up changing the culture there. Took my $20 bill and it vanished in the air. 
Your relationship with Guns N' Roses uh, got off to a mm-hmm. frosty start, but you always seem to turn a situation of adversity into a profitable one. So they turn up, Axel isn't going on stage. This is before they hit the big time. Uh, then you get them to drop in and you have a barbecue. There's the little reported incident at the time of you getting called to a hotel complex after Slash is found naked in a fetal position on a golf course. Ooh. And, of course, the piece de resistance really does have to be, uh, as we head back to Spinal Tap territory, being asked to provide a plastic surgeon to remove a spot from Axel Rose's uh, forehead where he doesn't go <laughs> on stage. How did you manage to keep your sanity in the midst of all that? Do you know, um, now that you put it like that, I don't know. Um, But but looking back and and trying to put my head into the moment, which isn't that hard to do because there's so many moments like that, what you're doing as the concert promoter is you're, you're basically the sacrificial lamb. You're the one that's that's sent to do their bidding. And and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, some of the requests and needs and demands, they're, I mean, they're outrageous sometimes. They're crazy. But the thing is, remember, we're not dealing with Schweitzer and Einstein here. We're dealing with rock and roll people. We're dealing with people who are used to having their immediate needs tended to immediately. They have people they pay 24-7 to look after them, and, and it's not because they're spoiled. It's because... There is a heaviness on these people as performers, obligation, responsibility to show up and deliver. 
And it's hard. Just because you're that person with that talent, you wrote that great song or you sang that great song or you played that great guitar solo in the middle of that song and people want to hear it recreated live. Just because you did that doesn't make you not human and, and that, you know, you're not going to have your own share of human problems every now and then. And, and like in Axel's case, he, he was, I, I, I mean, I laugh about it now and maybe he does. I have no idea. I haven't talked to him in years. But, you know, when, when somebody calls you up as serious can be and says, his face is going to be on a screen eight by ten feet on two sides of the stage, on both sides of the stage. And, and the very thought of, of him singing and his bandana slipping and there being a giant cyclops of a zit in the middle of his forehead <laughs> showing up is enough to scare him off the stage. So, okay, what do you want me to do? Can you get a plastic surgeon? For tomorrow? Yeah, and he's got to meet him at the airport because we need to know that you have them. And then they'll go to the hotel and take care of it. So it turned out that my wife at the time had made acquaintance with the plastic surgeon for her chest, not for a forehead zit. And uh, um, I, I called the guy up and he, he was beside himself. He thought it was crazy, but he said he would do it. I mean, they paid him a lot of money to go meet him there and go to the hotel. And, he said it took him about an hour, hour and a half, all told, from the time he left to the time he got back. It was very simple. Um, but I told him, I said, I'll give you an extra thousand if you'll sew a boob onto his forehead for him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that didn't happen. But um, I, I, I thought it was hilarious. And I told everybody that later, and they all thought it was quite fun, except for Axel. He didn't think that was funny a bit. Um, but great people. I, I, I love my days with Guns N' Roses. They, I was going to say... The thing that, that happens in the midst of these crises when they, when they occur and they take place is you're not thinking about how I'm going to get through this. You're thinking that you're going to do whatever it takes to get through it and in, in the most reasonable manner possible. And, and a lot of times you've got to check your own opinions and your own thoughts about these things so as not to make an opinion known about it while you're trying to get something done for somebody even if it's a little bit outrageous. You, you do what you got to do.
You've been involved with bookings with versions of Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, Dave Gilmore, The Stones on the 40 Lux Tour, Paul McCartney at the Sun Devil Stadium. Who and what sold out the quickest and what was the most profitable event you ever did? Hmm. Well, they're not the same one, um, but I, I mean, those dead shows were extremely big. I mean, we did over 120,000 people four years in a row um, in Vegas for the, over those three nights. But I would say that probably the, well, those things sold out immediately uh, after the first year. Uh, but McCartney uh, went down for years as the fastest sellout ever. It was in 1990 at the uh, Sun Devil Stadium here in Phoenix. In fact, I got to come to England uh, later that year, it was later in 1990. Um, they had an event in a pub there somewhere for Paul for the win uh, Guinness Book of World Records. And he had uh, gotten an award for the biggest show ever by a solo act, which was in uh, Brazil. I think they said 300,000 people came to see him there. Uh, so there was an award for that and there was a couple of other things. So they invited me to come and bring an award for us having the, the largest grossing, fastest selling show in Phoenix history, which was about almost 70,000 people in uh, less than three hours. Now, three hours might not sound like a long, a, a lot, uh, you know, a good amount of time mm -hmm. to, uh, to sell out 70,000 tickets, but when you consider these were all hard tickets pre-printed and sold by humans, not by a computer, then you know what a big feat that is. Um, uh, people were lined up for days, and and they sold them every as quickly as they could humanly sell them. There was a great couple of requests in there, by the way. Uh, first of all, there was the, obviously there was the no meat in the stadium because of the the both vegetarian. But the one I did like was the P.S. on the bottom. P.S. We don't travel with pot anymore. Could you get us some weed? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 and that I did. And, you know, and, and Paul couldn't have been kinder when... when uh, he I liked your Aunt it. Faye, didn't he? He loved Aunt Faye. <laughs> um, it, 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 it was so funny that when, I, when we did that, and, and he goes, hey, um, did anybody have anything they wanted signed? <laughs> and I said, as a matter of fact, they did, Paul. I came back, my arms were full, right? <laughs> he goes, is this it? I go... There's another batch. Is that all right? <laughs> he goes, just bring it. Let's go. He goes, you took care of me. I'm taking care of you. Good guy. Would your life and uh, career have been on a different trajectory had you been able to read music? Because you auditioned, didn't you, for Frank Zappa? Um, what Frank didn't tell me when we agreed to have an audition, I was just going to come and sing. Um, I, at the time, I knew all of the Frank Zappa Mothers of Inventions words to all their albums. And so this was prior to the album, which really broke through to the commercial aspect for Frank for the first time was, um, we're all, uh, not we're only in it for the money, uh, Overnight Sensation um, was, was their, I think that and Joe's Garage was, they were probably their, their biggest albums. But Overnight Sensation was the one that I think put him on the map with, regular people as opposed to the cultists like myself. And um, so I, Frank was recording that, the vocals for that album at Ike Turner's Secret Sound Studios in Studio City, California. And I was 18. And I made my way over to California and I arranged an audition with Frank. 
I got to the studio. I had no money. Got to the studio, and um, Frank comes out and he meets me. He's going to walk me back to go to the studio and see what I got. And as we're walking through the studio door, he goes, you can read music, of course. And I stopped, and he stopped. He goes, oh, come on. He goes, I can't, I'm not even going to audition you because I'll probably love you and want you to play with me. And I'm not going to, I swore to myself I was never going to let anybody else in the band that, that uh, couldn't read music. Well, <laughs> he did let Joe Satriani and Adrian Ballou play with him, right? Uh, <laughs> they don't read. Um, but I don't play like them either. Uh, so um, he turned me around and sent me on my way, and he said, uh, you know, let me know when you can read music. I'd be happy to do the audition. I, he goes, I like you and everything. He goes, I just can't do it. So that was 1973. Seven years later, I'm promoting a Frank Zappa show. And I walk up to him, and he's looking at me like, I know you. And I told him what happened, and he was out of his mind. He loved it. You know, now I, I said, Frank, it wasn't going to happen for me singing, so I, I did the next really? best thing. I still get to put your shows on. And he loved it. So we did shows, oh, God, well into the 90s, you know, as long as he could perform. And uh, sadly, he got sick and, and died way too early. I, I wish he was still around. His, his humor and his intelligence was uh, something, you know, to really enjoy. Just keep your 
And was there anybody <clears throat> left for you to promote? Is there anything left that you feel that you haven't achieved that you want to achieve? Well, you know, I mean, as promoters, we all have our, our dream shows. I, I've had several of them, and it's apparent that none of them are li likely to happen. So I don't think we'll see Roger and Dave back together again anytime soon. I just call it a hunch. Um, I don't think it's like they're out there uh, saying bad things or thinking bad things about each other, but it's kind of like the old, it's like a divorce, you know? I mean, they still have common business interests, but they really they have nothing to prove by getting back together again. The world would, would absolutely idolize it, though, if they would get back together and, and perform. Same with uh, Robert and Jimmy in the Zeppelin, John Paul Jones. I mean, the world would love to see that. In fact, after I went to the O2 show that Zeppelin did, and, and I loved that mm. show so much in my memory and, and being there. And I remember, remember thinking, God, if they would just come to L.A. for a week and come to New York for a week, do another week in London, do another week in Tokyo, you know, and maybe spend four months doing that, and they could put hard rock back on the map where it belongs. Um, and, and, you know, instead of all these other boy bands and everybody else that we have right now that are extremely po uh, popular and successful. But I mean, what about us guys that like to rock? We want our rock. And and the kids are the, of the same mindset. Imagine being 15 years old and seeing Jimmy Page and Robert Plant play together, you know, and see John Paul Jones up there behind that Hammond B3 or on bass and Jason Bonham playing drums. I mean, it would change lives. The last one, oh, well, there's actually two more. My other dream show is uh, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, and Eric Clapton. I think they should do a tour together. Three sets, one hour each, with a set at the end of all of them together. That's what That would be a great show. The other one would be Ringo and Paul, along with the kids, doing an evening of the Beatles music. That should happen. One time. They could retire the debt of, of third world countries. I mean, think, think <laughs> of what a world event that would be just like 1964. Maybe they'll do it on the uh, 60th anniversary of Ed Sullivan. How about that? That's, I, I, that's, yeah, that's the show sure. I think the world not only needs but deserves. You know, it, it's like, let's bring it all around again. Let's get everybody thinking about those days when, when things were a little less complicated but just as crazy in the world for the time we were living in. And then the Beatles come out of nowhere. Wow. That's why I became a promoter. Well, no reason why it can't, because those two, amongst other things, they actually get on. There's no, uh, there's no great animosity between those two. Uh, so, I mean, imagine, imagine Zach, and and Sean, and Julian, you know, and and even James, and and any. I don't know the uh, what the other talents that the, the kids have. I'm sure they can all do whatever, anything they set their minds to. But uh, they're also great musicians in their own right. Uh, Danny Harrison, oh my God. You know, I mean, to hear the songs by those people and how much they mean to them would make it uh, the greatest concert of all time.
And that was Danny Zalisco. Well, it was actually the Beatles, but prior to that, it was Danny Zalisco talking about his new book. It is called All Excess. It is out now via all the usual channels. It's a great read uh, with some really good photographs as well of the time over the years. Uh, I'll finish with one more very short story that made me laugh, partly because you can imagine the man actually saying it. And the man in question is the legendary comedian Rodney Dangerfield. He of Caddyshack, of course. He arrived. Uh, Danny is on hand to help with his bags. And uh, in one, he sees a toaster. Uh, What's that for, he asked. To which came the instant reply, it's to make my fucking toast. What do you think? You, You can just imagine the look on his face, can't you? Anyway, it is time to bid you farewell. Hope you've enjoyed it. I will be back in uh, around 10 days' time when we're going to have Thunder. Luke Morley is going to be joining us to talk about the new album, All the Right Noises, and uh, we're going to have Cheap Trick as well. Until then, from me, Tim Capel, bye-bye for now. (laughs) 